Welcome to season one, episode 13 of Grace or Grit, a podcast intended to address difficult, controversial, and debatable issues related to the Bible and the church. I'm your host, Dave Talley, and I serve as the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Herlock, Maryland. Along with me today, as always, is my co-host, Patrick Reed. He's a pre-field missionary with ABWE on deputation trying to get to the Gambia in Africa. And he also serves on the pastoral staff with me here in Herlock. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. How are you? And I'm doing great. Got me plenty of sunshine. People's complimenting my tan. So uh, I'm just I'm just a vain, happy guy today. Uh, our topic today has to do with dispensationalism, really, in my in my opinion. You guys can correct me if you think otherwise. And how God is uh, working right now among and through his people. What is his method and what are the rules that he has established and expectations that we can uh, anticipate? I assume that you have uh, come ready to fight the good fight today, Patrick. Surely we can find something we disagree on and duke it out, right? I'm sure we'll find something. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have that kind of, uh, of friendship. We, uh, we seem to challenge each other a lot. I've never had a, a, a single feeling of animosity against you that I can think of, Patrick. So that's, that's quite an accomplishment as much as we disagree. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> and then joining us today for our discussion is um, a missionary. Well, he was a missionary. I guess we're all missionaries, but he used to be on a foreign field. So I got a future missionary and a, and a former missionary, and we're all current missionaries, if that confuses everybody. Dr. Robert Talley. Robert is an assistant professor at Liberty University's School of Divinity. I learned yesterday it's called the John W. Rawlings School of Divinity. I Googled Dr. Robert Talley, Liberty University, and I discovered that. And he is in the Division of Theological Studies. And more importantly, he's my oldest brother. So, Robert, welcome to Grace or Grit. Thank you, and I appreciate you calling me a former missionary rather than an old one. <laughs> yeah, that's good. An old missionary. Uh, you're just an old man, a former missionary. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Uh, brotherly shove. I mean, brotherly love. Uh, Robert, by the way, was uh, heading off to college when I was like starting first grade or something. So uh, we, we didn't share a whole lot of the same uh, home together as as children. He's quite a bit, quite a bit uh, more seasoned than I am. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much, seriously, Robert, for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Why don't you take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about who you are, your testimony, and your ministry. That way the folks can uh, be familiar with you if they don't already know you. Okay, sure. Uh, at the age of eight, I realized for the first time uh, that I was a sinner. I'd heard the gospel many times in Sunday school and in church and from my parents but I'd never realized that it applied to me uh, because I had not realized I was a sinner. At that time, I asked the Lord Jesus to save me and uh, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins and was buried and rose again, according to the scriptures and that through him and only through him could I be presentable to God, be made righteous before God. Uh, later during my teenage years, I announced a call to missions and went off to Chattanooga to Tennessee Temple University, where I met my wife, Dawn. And after graduation, we were sent out by Temple Baptist Church in Chattanooga to serve as church planning missionaries with Baptist Mid-Missions. 
uh, and we served in German-speaking Europe for a little over a decade. And then we came back to the States uh, in 2003, and after a little time, entered the pastorate, uh, first in Vermont, uh, and then in Michigan. Uh, while in Michigan, I studied, or I started my doctoral studies, and uh, eventually ended up here on faculty at the School of Divinity of Liberty University, and I teach theology, as you mentioned, and apologetics and church history. And uh, here I have the opportunity to pour into students who are preparing for the ministry, as well as other students who, in some cases, are learning for the very first time some of the great teachings of the Bible. So it's, it's a wonderful privilege that I have here uh, at Liberty University. Amen. Well, um, of course, that's kind of a formal resume and a spiritual resume. Uh, we all have a lot of personal uh, experiences that, that make our story as well. And uh, how long have you been married? Did you mention that already? I didn't mention it, but it's this year, 35 years. 35 years. That's awesome. And he's got a couple, I would say a couple of kids, but uh, an adult son and a teenage daughter, right? Exactly. Yep. So that that qualifies you as a wise man just because you've survived so far in rearing children. Uh, But I I wish the folks uh, who who maybe haven't met you could meet you. Um, I admire you a great deal, and I certainly don't want to embarrass you or anything, but uh, I look up to you and uh, always appreciate our conversations. We don't talk that much, but uh, I treasure the, the times we do get together. So, Absolutely. Again, thanks for giving, giving us a little bit of your time today. I know you're a busy man. So here's the summary of the issue uh, that we're going to be talking about today. From the world-renowned theological source, Wikipedia. (laughs) And 10 of my listeners just turned me off. Uh, Full cessationists believe that all miracles have ceased, along with any miraculous gifts. Classical cessationists assert that the miraculous gifts, such as prophecy, healing, and speaking in tongues, ceased with the apostles. However, they do believe that God occasionally works in supernatural ways today. So the topic today is cessationalism or cessationists. Um, I prefer to deal with the philosophical viewpoint rather than the individuals is my preference, but we'll see what happens here. So uh, cessationalism versus uh, continuationalism. Uh, I hope I can even say those words correctly if we have to repeat them again. Of course, it's from the word cease and the word continue. So if you're a listener and you hate big words, um, that's probably good. I'm glad you feel that way. Uh, Cease means to stop, right? And and continue means to go on. So really, we're dealing, as far as I can tell, with what are our expectations? What should our expectations be concerning how God works miraculously in and around his people today. Um, How accurate is that description, guys? Uh, Have I left something out trying to set the stage? Is there something that we need to say before we even get going with the debate? I would say it's fairly accurate. Uh, There are a lot of full cessationists, but I think most 
people who would classify themselves as cessationists are, are classical. That is, they believe God does occasionally still uh, do miraculous things in the area of spiritual gifts. Okay. But, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of different viewpoints in that broad category. Sure. In fact, five minutes ago, I was looking for the old article that first introduced the term continuationism to me. I hadn't heard that term for whatever reason or didn't notice it previously. And uh, in in that context, I discovered the, the term partial cessationist, uh, which was a, a new category. And I think we always get into some trouble when we start trying to pigeonhole everything and everybody and and uh, put God in a cubby hole. I think we always end up making a mess. Uh, but anyway, for the sake of discussion, we're, we're talking about have the miracles ceased uh, or should we still expect them? And uh, to what degree is there some middle ground? That seems to be where we're going. Patrick, anything to add before we get rolling with the debate? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. I'm sure we'll probably add a few other things into the discussion as well, maybe. But yeah. Okay. All right, good. So like I said, first off, the terms are fairly fresh in my experience. Uh, I read an article about a year or two ago and uh, I was familiar with the issue with the debate, but somehow the headings had eluded me previously. So when I think of this issue, I first think of the differences I have with those who hold to a more charismatic Pentecostal theology. That's a real simple description of what comes to my mind. Is that a fair uh, way of looking at it? I would say so. Uh, like we mentioned, there are differences among cessationists, but pretty much cessationists are reacting against charismatic Pentecostal theology. Uh, most cessationists would consider themselves traditional, that this is the way the church has always believed, and that charismatic Pentecostal theology is the new kid on the block. And so that, that, that is a pretty good differentiation, I think, as far as what, where the issues really lie. Right. And of course, that's problematic, even in my uh, attempt to keep this a matter of theology, not a matter of personality, because immediately you start thinking of people you know who are charismatics and people you know who are Pentecostals. And I remember reading John R. Rice. Uh, some time ago, and he talked about how that he viewed charismatics as fundamentalists, and that he certainly had no problem working with them in uh, you know gospel campaigns and uh, so forth, crusades. And that actually surprised me because I was kind of reared, you know, distancing myself and being taught that I should distance myself from, you know, from these uh, crazy people, which is uh, I don't think a, a good char- uh, characterization. Uh, of of charismatics, there's certainly freaks in every denomination, and every every religion, and every community, and every family. You know, I'm the freak in mine. So uh, you don't want to label everyone based upon a really bad experience with one person in any particular camp. At least I don't think we should do that. So now, biblically, again, let me ask you guys. My mind runs to two passages fairly quickly. I think of Mark chapter 16. Verse 17 and 18, I'll read these passages to you. Um, We read these words. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, these are the words of Christ, words in red. In my name shall they cast out devils. 
They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. So these signs shall follow them that believe. So I'm like, okay, that's, that's clearly a reference to sign gifts that the disciples, the apostles, the church was going to anticipate. These things would be, these gifts would be given to them. They would perform these kinds of things and it would demonstrate, it would show that they were, you know, full of the power of God, approved of God and followers of Christ and so forth. And then my mind runs to 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 through 10, which says, charity never fails, but whether they pro- whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. And I assume that's where we got the term cessation of them. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, I'd like to hear what you guys think about that. What is the perfect thing? Then that which is in part, which he said earlier, what was in part, those things will be done away with. So just in a super simplified uh, way of describing this dilemma, it seems that these two passages would tell me that there were certain things, certain powers that God gave uh, through his son and through his spirit to the early church, basically as his seal of approval, verifying their ministry. But later on, those, those things were going to be taken away from them because something else fills in the gap. Um, and we can talk about what that is. So do you, be, do you guys view these passages as relevant to the topic at hand and related to one another directly? Well, yes, they're both relevant, uh, but, in, but and in some ways are used by opposing camps, you know, to try to, to counteract each other. Uh, I, I would like to begin with, with the passage of Mark, uh, just because it's definitely relevant, but a lot of people will, su- will simply discount that passage completely because of its place in the disputed uh, section of the book of Mark. Uh, however, even taking that into consideration, it is clear from other passages, from the Old Testament prophecy of Joel, and here's where our dispensationalism comes in, uh, also how that passage was fulfilled at Pentecost, and I believe will still be fulfilled in the future, uh, and throughout the book of Acts, and other passages, specifically Hebrews 2, 4, where it talks about a miraculous signs confirming the truth of the gospel. And so even, even if you say, well, that's, that passage is, is disputed, so we shouldn't depend on that. The point of the passage is, is that there were going to be sign gifts for the purpose of confirmation. And uh, now, the the problem with with this all these passages is is that the earliest disciples the apostles this was not up for the debate for debate with them whether they were going to continue or to cease they were not looking for the time when gifts would cease or continue they were looking for the time when Jesus would return and they expected him to return in in their lifetime no doubt and so it's they they weren't really trying to address in, directly this issue that we're trying to to address when they were talking about 
the existence of sign gifts. May I challenge you? Yeah. Not not because I disagree necessarily, but because I think there's some things that at least run against what you just said. Mm-hmm. If they didn't think of it, then why did Paul say this in First Corinthians 13? Tongues shall yeah. cease. And why in Acts do we seem to have a diminishing of the exercise of some of those spectacular things of early Acts? It's They seem to become fewer and further between as, as just the acts of the apostles and the ministry of Peter and, and Paul uh, is explained to us. It seems that they would recognize already that something is, is happening. Mm-hmm. And on the face of it, this passage in 1 Corinthians certainly does seem uh, in our context to to be addressing the issue. But what Paul is really talking about here, I mean, he is mentioning that sign, certain sign gifts are going to cease. They're no longer going to be necessary. But it's not in the context of our debate. It's in the context of comparing the value of these gifts and the continuation of love. All right, love is the one thing that's going to remain. Uh, in fact, he says there's not one thing, but the three things, uh, faith, hope, and, and love, these are the things that are going to remain, not prophecy, not sign gifts. I mean, in eternity, there will be no need for prophecy. There will be no need for tongues. Uh, there will be no need for healing. After all, no one's going to be sick. Uh, so, and, and that's what Paul is saying is right now, these things are helpful. These things are perhaps necessary because of our lack of knowledge. But there's coming a time when the perfect comes, which I believe that's referring to Jesus Christ. But uh, many people uh, believe that that's referring to the completion of Scripture. Uh, and I don't know what you fellows think on that. And so feel free to to d- disagree with me. But uh, I, I, I believe that this passage here, even though it does talk about the ceasing of gifts, he's not really addressing our debate. Although it does have implications, it is relevant to our debate. I, and and I, I, think it's re- I think it's relative for a reason that I wouldn't have anticipated, because he seems to be talking about focus. It seems that the Corinthians had a focus on something they weren't supposed to be focusing on. He's right. like, you're so worried about getting the gift of tongues or getting the gift of prophecy. Why don't you focus on faith and focus on love? You know, so, but that seems to be a similar issue with the charismatic uh, perspective that there's this huge focus with some of them anyway, on getting the second blessing, you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit separate from salvation and exhibiting the presence of the spirit by speaking in tongues. Right. rather than a focus on love and faith. So even if you have a different cultural context and maybe even a different direct theological issue, you still end up with the same conclusion, which is so strange to me. No, no, I would agree that there are some, and again, just as with the cessationists, there's many different viewpoints and flavors. There's also many different ones in the charismatic Pentecostal realm as well. And so it's, but that, it, that certainly is a danger. Uh, that is always present with humankind it, within the church, at least until Christ comes uh, and we're perfected and we're redeemed completely. And that is that 
we have a tendency to emphasize what might build us up, uh, what might puff us up. Uh, And that plays in a lot of areas, as we saw in the church at Corinth. It wasn't just a spiritual gifts problem. It was a sacrificing, you're eating food sacrificed to idols and uh, dividing into parties. And uh, many, many, I mean, almost every chapter brings up a different issue (laughs) in 1 Corinthians of where people get puffed up. Uh, because they want to see themselves superior to others in some way or another. So Patrick, what is this perfect thing? You think it's the coming of Christ or the completion of the canon in first Corinthians 13, 10? Yeah, I, I think it's the coming of Christ. And the reason is, is because if you, you read on just a couple more verses, verse 12 says, um, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So I, I think he's uh, in that context. You can see this is talking about when Christ returns, when we know everything. I'm not sure how that uh, we could say that I'm seeing face to face and 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 put that in context of the Bible being completed. So that that to me is why I think it has to do with the end times when Christ's return. I mean, I don't think it's specific on an exact time necessarily, but certainly in the realm of you know, eternity. Um, and I think, uh, I think the reason there's such a debate about this um, is because of what you brought up before about charismatics. And I think, I think this is uh, a lot of uh, uh, Baptists and others who, who fall in this camp who, you know, when you read first Corinthians, uh, it seemed like Paul was kind of dealing with some of the same issue. You had uh, particularly speaking with tongues, you had, you know, the Corinthian church, it sounds like from how he was rebuking them that, you know, people would come in and there were, you know, I don't know if you've been to a church like this, but people are flopping around on the floor and everybody's speaking in all these tongues and you can't understand anything that's going on. It seems like total chaos. Uh, and that just sounds like what Paul's saying in first Corinthians. Hey, this isn't a good thing. This isn't edifying to one another. This, this, when an unbeliever walks in, you look crazy to them you know we, we should you should be doing things properly and in order and everything to build up the church um and I, that's a big theme i see within uh, this section of, of first corinthians how he's talking about everything is to be done to edify one another not yourself but others um and so i think what happens is is we'll we'll maybe see this uh in not not all charismatics, but some charismatic churches, particularly where it gets just seems like out of hand. And um, so then we'll try to take passages and I think stretch them to try to make them fit so we can say, well, no, this is ceased and this is why. And here are the here are the proof texts that why it's completely gone and what you're saying is wrong. Um, when I'm not sure, I don't think we can make a very strong case on, on that end, because, you know, from. From these passages, for example, a lot of times I hear folks say that, well, it, it was only signed gifts and that was only the apostles. Uh, but that's not true because, you know, we can look at Stephen, for example. He, um, uh, in Acts, we can see that he was doing great miracles. Um, and there, I, I think this was common. Even even Paul talking to the Corinthians was clearly saying to, to pray to get, you know, uh, tongues and um prophecy and things of that nature. There were clearly people prophesying and, you know, they were not the apostles either. So uh, it doesn't seem that these were signs just associated that only the apostles had. Now they seem to have a greater amount of them and, you know, it was more spectacular, I think for sure. 
Um, but to say that it's, you know, the last apostle died, so it just all ended, um, I don't think I could say that. But I think we can say from experience and from history and looking back that it's not nearly as normal as it was during the time of Acts. We don't, you know, we don't see this going on the way that it was happening uh, in the early church. Um, and so I think just from experience, we got to say, yeah, something's changed significantly from that time. And, you know, God was certainly doing a specific thing to, you know, show uh, and authenticate the apostles and the preaching and, you know, the, um, uh, the completion of the canon, you know, so that people uh, could be clear on that. And certainly he did something very specific at that time. But I don't think that's to say that he couldn't do that now. Um, you know, I mean, we know that he's capable of doing that unless he says he's not going to. And I just don't see anywhere that he says specifically, I'm not going to do that during this time right now. So I don't see the things as competing. And that's, that's pretty typical for me. <laughs> uh, I don't see the, the completion of the canon and the coming of Christ as competing concepts. I know they're different, but to me, they're, they're principally in the exact same direction. You have the full revelation of who Jesus Christ is as you read the full revelation of Scripture, and you have the full personal, physical revelation of Christ at his coming. So I don't... It wouldn't, it's not strange to me that the canon is completed, the last apostle dies, and these signs are diminished or cease. I would say diminished. We'll get into that a little bit more. And, and then, of course, they're not needed at all once Christ himself shows up. To me, there's just no competition there at all. They're not, they're not, they're not at odds. That's just the way I see it. I just think it's, it's like with Elijah and John the Baptist and the witness of revelation. It's some kind of progressive view. Uh, and I might not be using that term correctly. It, it's, um, uh, it's, uh, an opening up of a, of a truth of a reality that becomes increasingly clear, uh, increasingly undeniable as God works in this direction. That's the way I view it. Yeah. I, I think that the, the completion of the canon and the existence of miracles, uh, you know, miracles have always come at specific times for specific purposes. And there were times when God was doing great work. We can think of the book of Esther, the book of Ruth, uh, the 400 silent years where God was working. And oftentimes there were not miracles happening during that time period. But then God would, for his own reasons, would begin to do miraculous works. And what we find in the book of Acts uh, is that we know why he's doing those miraculous works, because uh, the, the Jews need to know, one, that Jesus really is the Messiah and that he's God, the risen one, uh, the one who has uh, ascended to heaven and is now uh, on the throne at the right hand of the Father, and that Gentiles uh, in Acts chapter 9, you know, where Cornelius uh, comes to faith and the Gentiles speak in tongues. And then several other occasions, the miraculous works among the Samaritans, which were all confirmation that God not only is working among the Jews, but is also working among the Gentiles. And so we see that the miraculous works in, uh, in the book of Acts were not just to confirm the gospel message 
but to confirm it in a specific context. Uh, and if and when God does miracles or sends miraculous gifts, and I believe he will again before the coming of Christ, uh, I believe the prophecy of Joel is not yet fully completed. Uh, the two witnesses, at least in the book of Revelation, will be performing miracles uh, during the tribulation period, uh, which will be it, an identification of what's of what God is doing, and so and of who they are. Exactly, but the canon itself being complete uh, does help us to understand that hey, God has told us what we need to do, and we do not need. Uh, to have a miracle to believe the Bible. It's like with the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man said to Father Abraham, said, send Lazarus, raise him from the dead, and send him to warn my brothers. And Father Abraham said, they have a law and the prophets. If they're not going to listen to the law and the prophets, they're not going to listen to one who's raised from the dead either. Uh, so the purpose of miracles is not primarily to convince people of the truth, but to confirm the truth. Yeah, the verification. Yeah, the verification. The the actual faith does not stem from the seeing of the miracle. Yeah, that's proof. You can see that from the life of Christ because he performed more, more miracles than anybody, and then they realized like they didn't believe it. You know, right. and and exactly. it, it, he marveled at their unbelief in the face of the mighty miracles that he had done, and he even said, "So you don't believe me for this reason or that? You ought to at least believe me because of the works I'm doing." Um, but, and I was thinking of that exact uh, context, Robert, with the rich man. Uh, and I was also thinking of Second Peter 1, where we have the voice from heaven, Peter talks about, which we heard when they were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a miraculous thing. But then he said, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your heart. Um, in that whole context, going on to the next two verses, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. We're talking about scripture here, I presume, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of God, but holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So, yeah, I, I don't need a miracle. Here's the problem, though. The, the, the charismatic perspective looks at my perspective and says, well, the problem is you just don't have enough faith. I mean, you ought to let God be God. You ought to let him be big and do what he wants to do. And I think there's some validity, validity in the point, but it actually ends up being a matter of pride, right? And then me on the other side, I puff up with pride and say, no, I don't need a miracle. God said it. That's good enough for me. You know, and in both cases, it's a, a horrible motive, right? <laughs> it, mm -hmm. And so uh, I think there's some work to be done on both sides. And, th and that, that brings me to the next uh kind of bullet point in this conversation that I want to have with you guys here that we're having. I am essentially a cessationist, but I've described to Patrick before that I view this matter a little deeper than just strict chronological, than, than just a strict chronological viewpoint. I grew up thinking of it chronologically, right? John the apostle died. The book of revelation was written. We need no more sign gifts. The end. Nobody speaks in tongues anywhere at any time forever, you know, until the tribulation period or something. Uh, I don't view it that way. If the gospel and the scripture makes it to a new people group, 
why would I not expect some of the same signs and proofs that accompanied the ministry of many of the first century missionaries, church members and leaders? Why would I not expect some of those things to be repeated? And actually an experience, that's, that's what I have encountered. Stories from missionaries of God doing what I would consider to be bizarre things, not charismatic missionaries, but fundamental independent Baptist missionaries telling me stories of people having visions of the earth shaking when the community got saved, you know, things that are like, well, that sounds like a book of Acts, you know? So is there a place for a, a separate conversation, chronological versus, I don't know what you would call it, geographical maybe? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest points that I, I think many Baptists don't address uh, because I don't know personally, and I know quite a few missionaries to Muslims. I don't know a single one that would say the miracles have completely ceased. Maybe they did before they went to the field, then they come back and go, well, I can't say that anymore. Uh, because the things that missionaries are seeing um, of working among Muslims, uh, and these are not charismatics, um, but uh, they are seeing things that they simply, if they're happening here, I'm not hearing about them, <laughs> but they're surely happening uh, in other places among, uh, you know, completely lost people groups. And so, um, you know, either we've got a whole bunch of missionaries who are just liars um, or, you know, making stuff up, um, or there's something going on that maybe uh, our theology, our cessationalist theology doesn't quite address. Um, you know, certainly among Muslims, I would say 75% of every Muslim believer I've talked to came to Christ by through a dream that has occurred. I mean, if you talk to Muslims, dreams are just a huge part of their salvation. Now, most of them, it, it hasn't been like something new was revealed to them. It's usually, you know, something maybe along the lines of they had a dream that they were going to meet this person in a specific place. And that person is the one who gave the gospel to them, you know, as a missionary or someone like that. Um, almost everyone described Christ as looking exactly the same, dressed in white. Every single one that I've heard, you know, talk about this vision, that these visions they've had. Um, you know, it's just so common among Muslim believers that it's, it's very hard to dismiss. You know, why is it happening the same way for every single one of them, it seems like, uh, that you come across? Um, you can get into demon possession. I mean, it, it seems to me that there, there's a group that even thinks that that's not happening anymore, which clearly does not seem to be the case just from the missionaries I talked to in the Gambia that are dealing with it every single day uh, on a on a constant basis. Um, so, you know, you're seeing people with supernatural <laughs> uh, strength and things of that nature. You know, I, I don't know how else to explain that, you know, um, and I don't believe that they're all lying and they're all making up something to sensationalize what they're doing i mean maybe some do um but it would be hard for me to believe that you know all huge amounts of teams are all doing that together so yeah i think um uh, you know both um god and the devil work in different ways and in, in different parts of the world it seems depending on um uh, how things are progressing over there um, it does appear to me that the, the devil has a, a very strong hold uh, over Africa and, and works differently. I mean, if you think about America, to me, I look at it as 
the devil's working a lot through materialism in, in more subtle ways. But in Africa, he works in very different ways um, that are unusual to us, but certainly was not unusual to uh, the early church and, and what was going on at the time of Christ. So I think we have to address those issues and to just try to ignore it or to make missionaries who come back feel like, uh, you know, they can't even uh, talk with their churches because they see these things, they come back and then they're like, oh, they just get completely dismissed. And most of them will not talk to their churches about it because they're afraid that they're going to make them seem like they're crazy. Um, and I, I don't think that's a, we have a proper theology if we're making the missionaries we send off, you know, not even want to talk about what they're seeing. So I think we have to address that issue. So how much of what you just said is addressed in Second Timothy 3? verse four through seven talking about the end times. Um, there'll be people who are traitors, heady, high-minded lovers of pleasures, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. He says from such turn away. These are the ones who creep into houses, lead captive, silly women, laden with sins, led away with divers lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of truth. I read that and I'm like, whew, what if this is describing, in part, leaders of Christianity and pew-sitters in Christianity in, in America? A form of godliness, but no power. Ever learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't know that it's specifically targeted at that, but I think there's a place for, for us saying, are we just... Do we only want a Christianity, a variety of Christianity that we can manage? You know, is that really what's going on? You know, and as soon as God gets involved, that's ah, a little scary to me. You know, and I just want to back off from that. I mean, I don't know. Am I am I hitting that too strong? Well, I I, I agree with the points that Patrick is trying to make. Uh, although I would differentiate between. Uh, charismatic gifts and God's miraculous working because, uh, and he gave one simple example of someone who had a dream about someone who gave him the gospel. Well, that was God's miraculous working clearly. Uh, but that was not necessarily what we think of as a charismatic gift. The man wasn't a believer at the time. Uh, and so sometimes I think what happens is in our, and, and we kind of implied this already, that in our effort to combat what we feel is a dangerous direction, we swing so far the other way that we deny, uh, and, and you're referring to Second Timothy 3, denying of the power, although I, I would say that that's the, the, the power thereof, it's talking it, the idea there is more that Christ is the power uh, and not necessarily referring to miracles in and of itself, but certainly if there are any miracles, it's because of Christ and the Holy Spirit working. It's not, not because we're able somehow on our own to come up with a way to do miracles. Right. But I think it is something that we need to be, uh, we, we need to be aware that the spiritual world is still, real always has been always will be and that just because we're very materialistic society uh, we should not deny 
uh, and not try to compartmentalize uh, the spiritual and the material world from each other so that they don't have anything to do. Like you said, that is easier to manage, uh, <laughs> but uh, right. I think it is a danger that we, we do fall into. Yeah. So you've kind of both uh, gotten a little bit into the immediate purpose of the miracle. And I'm actually doing a series on miracles right now um, with my early morning Bible study on Wednesdays. And we're, we just covered the 10th miracle. Uh, we, we've been talking about the purpose. Why did Jesus do what he did? And there were three reasons that were given by Dr. Sexton, uh, the author of the book we're following through. Um, and he said one reason is miracles were done, especially by Christ, uh, to reveal the identity of God, the character of God, the identity of Christ specifically. Um, and to cultivate faith in people or to promote faith in people um, and to make people responsible, basically. Uh, you know, you, you're responsible. If, if, if you didn't know, maybe you could, maybe you could uh, make an excuse for not following Christ. But now you know, and you better do something with it. So, you know, that's, that's the principle of justice. Um, so you do have the signs and wonders concept, but then you just have God intervening and sus suspending the normal natural ways of doing things. Uh, and I, I think it would be difficult for me to find a friend in ministry that would say miracles have ceased altogether. I, I don't think I would find one. Um, I think people would say, well, they're rare. I haven't seen many, you know, or something like that. Uh, and they would definitely distance themselves from, you know, raising the dead or, uh, or speaking in tongues. Uh, I have had the urge to speak in tongues once. <laughs> I was trying to witness to a neighbor and they didn't speak English. And I wanted to just open my mouth and see what would come out. <laughs> but I was too much of a coward or too wise. I don't know which one it was. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't try it. But I was like, man, if I had the gift of tongues, I could witness to this lady. Uh, but I didn't do anything. But if it had happened, Patrick, I don't know if I'd have told anybody. <laughs> no, I don't know what you're talking about. It didn't happen to me <laughs> uh, because it is, you know, looked looked down on so much in some circles. So, uh, well, well, it is true that um, uh, at least from my experience, I, I don't know any missionaries that have been given the gift of tongues. You know, so that does not seem to be something common. They certainly see a lot of other stuff, but that that does not seem to be something that, you know from from my experience that people have reported on that you know all of a sudden they're seeing you know people speaking in tongues all over the place i'm i'm sure i'm i'm sure there are some that maybe have experienced that um but i'm not, i don't know any so it does does seem at least in the the muslim world for the most part the <clears throat> the big the big thing is dreams that's certainly the um but it but as robert pointed out it doesn't you know it doesn't specifically go against um, uh, you know, a sensationalist um, viewpoint um, at all. It's just, it does seem that because uh, many are trying to fight so much against the charismatics that uh, they'll just start to, they, they don't want to hear about any miracles or they, they don't want to hear about anything along the supernatural world because they're, they're too concerned that it's going to, they're going to be classified as a, a charismatic or something. And um, I think, I think we need to get our theology from, from what the Bible says and, and just not specifically against fighting against something else because um, it tends to bring us to extremes that I really don't think are useful. 
So if he still heals people, I believe he does. And if he gives, you know, visions and dreams for the, for the propagation of the gospel, why would he not still bless with the gift of giving Robert the ability to speak German without studying it, giving you the ability to speak Wolof without studying it? Is there a prophetic thing that, that we're anticipating that, that, if tongues came, if tongues continued now, or if they, uh, if they were current, then that sign would, would, would not be seen. It wouldn't be relevant. What, what is it? Why don't we have that? Why don't we have tongues now? I think that's the biggest problem for a cessationist because it's not clear to me that God has revealed why he does, why he's not doing miracles. Uh, some, and this is, I think, a, a minority, but some Pentecostals claim that because the church is not faithful, uh, that we're not able to do miracles. But when you look, when you look through history, I mean, there's people who have been faithful to Scripture, faithful to the truth, who, if they weren't cessationists, still were not doing miracles. And there's, there's no reason that we can ascertain from Scripture as to why God was not doing miracles. So it's one of those unanswered questions that uh, I really, and I know there's theories that are, that are out there, most of them related to the canon of Scripture. But um, I think the Bible just doesn't tell us. Yeah. Well, you do have Jesus saying, you know, well, I guess it was John maybe who said of Jesus. He didn't do many miracles in a certain place because of their unbelief. Mm-hmm. So I guess there's at least a place for that discussion. But, I mean, you got examples of men in the Bible who were <laughs> not exactly noble, holy men uh, that God did miraculous things to, with, through. You know, Samson, he's not exactly your, your great character of, of morality. Um, right. <laughs> clearly had... Uh, miraculous power constantly, you know, through the majority of his life, it seems anyway. And, you know, men like uh, Balaam, I don't know if you believe, you know, that he was a prophet or not, but uh, definitely he was receiving visions from God, despite his uh, distinct problem with being enamored with money. So you, you can't really call him noble. And yet God was doing things miraculously. So it does seem that a conversation about the nature of God and his immutability, which is one of the things I wanted to bring up, if God is immutable, if God doesn't change, and we know he is immutable, and you know, we know he doesn't change, how do we explain the differences in why he works in different ways you know, during the days of Peter and, and John and Paul than he does in the days of you know, Patrick and Robert and Dave? Um, you know, if he's the same, why is he doing things different? Speak to that. Well, immutability has to do with the attributes of God. God is always love. God is always all-powerful. But he does not always do the same thing. Just the very example of who Jesus Christ is. He became man. In other words, in history, there was a time when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, was not man. And so if he's immutable, that's a problem unless you limit immutability to the attributes of God. Right. Good stuff. Good reminders. Cause definitely we as uh, 
as preachers can make statements that can be interpreted and applied in places that it doesn't belong. Yeah. So that's good. Well, so what does this, uh, what does this mean? How does it matter? Okay. So we got folks, uh, you know, who'll be listening to this folks who attend here at Grace Baptist church and others as well. Who'll be listening. Why, why should they care? Why does this matter? Well, I think we should take some lessons from Paul's letter to the Corinthians when dealing with this, where Paul said, you know, these, these spiritual gifts are great as long as you're using them to build each other up. You should be seeking things that are going to edify the others in your church, the others around you, uh, the things that are going to reach people for Christ. And specifically, love is the greatest, right? You know, if you if you love one another, then you're going to edify them. You're going to be doing the work of Christ. And that that's really where your focus needs to be anyways. I mean, if God chooses to give you another gift, great. Use that again uh, for the benefit of those around you, not to build yourself up. And so I, I, to me, I think that's Paul's main point to the Corinthians. You know, you're dividing yourselves. It seems to me that the whole the whole letter of first Corinthians was about all the divisions that was occurring between them. And they were just using, I think, spiritual gifts as another way to divide themselves. Oh, well, I have this gift. And, oh, I have that gift. And maybe that's what we're doing today. You know, the, mm. the charismatics are going, well, I have the gift of tongues and you don't have the gift of tongues. And you're like, well, they don't, that doesn't even exist anymore. And so we're arguing about that instead of just focusing on loving one another. Right. Um, and so to me, that, that's where the lesson comes from. I, I think it's good to, to know where you stand on this and to know what it is. But uh, at the same time, we can, we can, you know, argue to the point of where we're just completely ignoring and we're doing the same thing that the Corinthians were doing that Paul was rebuking them for. So, so if we could take all the cessationists and put them in, in one, you know, set of stands and uh, all the continuationists and put them in another set of stands, the question really should not be who's right although that's a legitimate issue, the question should be to the cessationist, who saved you? Christ. And then to the, who saved you? Christ, right? And recognizing what we have in common rather than, than our differences is a great place to start. Um, yeah, certainly to start. I mean, I do understand that there are those who see sign gifts as a part of their salvation. Yeah, that's a problem. Now, that's not everybody, but there are those who believe that. That becomes problematic. Nope. Uh, but uh, we ought to be careful and not throw everybody in the same theological basket. Right. There are people who think they're going to heaven because they stood up in, ch in church and spoke some erratic emotional something. Right. I must be saved. But there are also people who think they're going to heaven because they've been, you know, born, raised and, and indoctrinated in an independent Baptist church. <laughs> and neither one of those things is going to save anybody. You know, so it doesn't matter what your error is. An error is an error. Yeah. Um, and, and I think as, a, as the pastor, my message to believers in the church is this issue is not about me regulating someone else. If that's what it is about to you, then you're probably going in the wrong direction. If I'm just trying to put people under my thumb and control them and say, no, you want to, you want to be a Christian. You got to be a Christian like this and you got to obey me. It's not about me regulating. I'm not the Holy spirit, right? We certainly submit to the word and we should submit to the spirit, but we're all in a different 
place in our uh, sanctification, in our spiritual growth. And, you know, just because God taught Robert something yesterday doesn't mean he's going to teach me today. He may wait 10 years to teach me, or he may never point it out to me. He may never figure I can handle it or whatever else, you know? So um, it's not about regulating each other and it's not about self-validation. I am superior because I'm a cessationist or I am superior because I'm a continuationist. Um, certainly those are not helpful uh, perspectives. Um, but we do want to understand the scriptures and we do want to know what is God expecting of me? What, what should I be pursuing now? And I don't believe I should be pursuing tongues or the ability to raise the dead. If the charismatics start raising the dead, now I'm going to have to sit down and listen and see what they have to say. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's going to be an obvious, that's something that can't be faked. That's right. <laughs> All right, guys. Anything to add before we wrap this thing up? It was such a docile conversation. I mean, nobody duped each other. <laughs> I think our listeners will be falling asleep, Patrick. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we were all, we, we, we should have invited a, a charismatic or something on. <laughs> could, right. have, could have added a, a real good perspective. But, yeah, it seemed like we, we all mostly agreed. Well, that's not a bad thing. Well, it is a debatable topic, so hopefully it'll be a blessing to those uh, who listen. Thanks for listening to Grace or Grit, and thank you, Robert and Patrick, for spending time with me today. I pray for God's richest blessings on both of you men, your families, and on your ministries. And as well, of course, I pray for God's blessings upon our listeners. Make sure you share this podcast with others. Uh, our listenership, our audience, whatever you call it, is climbing slowly. And uh, certainly we want to be a blessing. We want to get the word propagated as far as we can. So uh, if it's a blessing to you, share it with someone else. May we all serve our powerful and unchanging God well today and every day. See you next time.